Good. Well, thank you for that introduction, Arthur Vardin. I, w I was going to say, because I wasn't expected to be introduced again, that I am very pleased to be here back in Manchester. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time, is come back here and give something back. And a talk is one way of doing that. So it's about the anniversary, I think, when I first came along in Withington, 1982. Uh, so, God, yeah, 34 years. And I'm very, very grateful that I came across the Manchester Buddhist Centre and very pleased to be back here. And it's always very inspiring coming back and just seeing what can be done, you know, from quite humble beginnings, well, in Longsight, Withington. And now look what you've got, what a fantastic centre you've got here. So it's very pleased to, I am very pleased to be back here. So the title of my talk uh, is What Happens When We Die? But I've added a little postscript to it, uh, coming out of a conversation I had with Arthur Vardin and uh, Sacharuni. It's What Happens When We Die and Teddy Bears. I thought I'd try and sort of lighten. You know. It's all very good what we're doing, and uh, there is you know, something very profound and meaningful in the reflections we've done even so far on uh, Parinirvana Day. But if we can keep that sort of a lightness to it as well, I think so much the better. So, but anyway, that comes at the end. But I chose that title partly to attract you know, people in with us. One of the big existential questions, what happens when we die? I'm sh well, I trust it's a question which may have crossed your mind uh, now and again, along with the other sort of big existential questions. You know, who am I? What am I doing here? What's the best way to live? Why am I me and not my sister or my friend? Why am I living in this particular time, in this particular country? How come I ended up being English and born in Birmingham? And I, I thought I was going to reference one of our great Brummies. I mean, I noticed coming back to Manchester that there was a, a minibus doing a, a Manchester musical tour. And on the side was written The Smiths, uh, Joy Division... Uh, was it Happy Mondays? <laughs> <laughs> but in Birmingham, we've got Jasper Carrot. <laughs> I don't know if <laughs> a comedian. Um, probably not so well known these days. But he came up with one of the great questions of life. Um, maybe not so metaphysical and philosophical as what happens when we die. But his question was, why do pubic hairs know when to stop growing? <laughs> I'm sure that's a question which is cross your mind as well. One of the great mysteries of life. Why do pubic hairs know when to stop growing? Anyway. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm mainly going to be speaking about spiritual death. I don't really know what happens when we die. I mean, there are certain people who think they've got you know, some experience of that. I haven't, or I can't remember. But I, I'm going to be talking more about spiritual death rather than you know, what happens when the lights go out, finally. Um, I trust you're probably aware of spiritual death in terms of the context of the uh, five stages of a spiritual practice or the mandala of a spiritual practice. So, just to remind you, we've got uh, integration, followed by positive emotion, followed by spiritual death, followed by spiritual rebirth, and sort of intermingling all that is spiritual receptivity or you know, sometimes called compassionate spontaneous activity. But I'm going to be mainly focusing on spiritual death and I gather tomorrow Arthur Priya is going to be giving a talk on spiritual rebirth. 
And I think that's very good because the two are very closely linked. They're said to be two sides of the same coin. Um, the way we speak of spiritual death, you can't really have spiritual death without a spiritual rebirth. But this talk sort of focuses in more on the, the experience of spiritual death. But the teddy bears bit is a bit about spiritual rebirth, but that comes at the end. So what is spiritual death? Um, well, there's quite a lot of, has been expounded about these stages of spiritual practice. I'm not going to try and give a, as it, uh, an overview of the whole way spiritual death is spoken about. But one of the ways I've picked up from Maitreya Bandhu is um, spiritual death can't really be done. It's something which is done to you. Um, we can use our will uh, and so on to become more integrated through mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing and so on. And we can develop positive emotion. But spiritual death we can't really do. Because the nature of it, it's us, well, going beyond our self-will. Uh, it's something more from outside. In some ways it sounds a bit mysterious, but it does, I think, also connect with probably another sort of existential reflection we tend to have, or glimpse even, that there is something above and beyond ourselves and our mundane, ordinary life. There is something intangible, which is difficult to express, but we think there's something more to life than you know, our nine-to-five, our weekly routine, beyond DVD box sets and smartphones and keeping up with the latest technology. There's something more, bigger and more meaningful beyond all that. So you can't really practice spiritual death. I mean, I, I know it's also said that within each stage there is all the other stages sort of implicit, but in some ways you can't really practice spiritual death. Well, that's one angle you can take on it. And there was a little quote I had from um, Maitreya Bandhu, which I picked up from his new book, uh, The Journey and the Guide. So spiritual death, you can't access it through thought but through awareness which I think is quite interesting and we do it through the awareness of noticing those moments when our self-attachment rears up when we react when we lose when things fall apart when we fail when our expectations aren't met when love ends, when we're criticised, when we realise that whatever we do, life cannot be fixed. So it's in those moments, sorry, I finished the quote, it's then that we get a real sense of our self-attachment. It's then that we have a chance to be liberated from it. So it's our deep-rooted attachment to this sense of self, uh, a sense, you know, which has got us this far. In some ways, it's very tied in with deep instinctual urges to protect ourselves. It's part of our evolutionary inheritance. And it's something very, very precious to ourselves. It's what we are. And we do, you know, like it or not, we do have a sense that there is a me in here which sort of perseveres through our lives, the essential me. 
But according to Buddhism, in the bigger perspective, well, that's just an idea. That's just a construct. In fact, saying it's just an idea, I think, gives the wrong, gives a slight misleading impression that we think if it's just an idea, well, I can sort of, with my rational faculty, see through it. But I think it goes much deeper than that. That's why I like Maitrabandu stressing that it's not through thought that we can undo this sense of self. And I know these are, there are various methods where they particularly use that. But I think that, that may be helpful, but I think it goes much deeper than that. In some ways, our, our, our whole sort of emotional being needs to be involved. And it's when we go through uh, various crises in our life that we really come up against this attachment to ourself. So I was lucky enough, I mean, I say lucky enough, but because um, I was reminded of a, one way Sangharakshita sl- slightly sort of twists uh, these sort of events in our lives, you know, these experiences of failure when things fall apart. Uh, he says, well, that can be the result of your good karma. That can be the fruition of your efforts to practice the spiritual life. So if you're lucky, if you've been a good Buddhist, you may uh, have life events which are, you know, which we'd normally experience of a crisis, where her habitual response would be, I don't want this to be going on. This is not what I want. You know, really strong aversion. So I've been lucky enough to have a few of those, and I'm... (laughs) I must have been a very good Buddhist, maybe in a past <laughs> life. I seem to, there was a period in my life where I just seemed to limp from crisis to crisis, from things falling apart, slightly coming together and falling apart again. But um, I think that's a very good perspective to have, you know, when things aren't going well or, you know, we're having great difficulties. This could be the result of good karma coming to ripeness. And... Well, the way Sanger actually talks about sort of overcoming this sense of self, he, he talks about it being expanded rather than eliminated. He talks about expanding the sense of self or softening that sense of rigidity we can feel around it. Softening that sense of self. So we let uh, connections with others come in, let connections with life become stronger. And we don't get that sense, which we can sometimes have, of a, sen- a self in here, in conflict or sort of in a state of battle with what's out there. And sometimes we can experience that dichotomy very rigidly indeed. So we're trying to soften that or expand it rather than negate or annihilate this sense of self. So spiritual death isn't something we do, it's something that's done to us. And it's in those sort of moments where we can go beyond, I forgot to set my timer, never mind. So I was going to particularly tell the story of my experience of being diagnosed with cancer about five and a half years ago. Um, And it was about five years ago this time when I was really in the midst of quite a hellish period of suffering uh, with the treatment. So I'll, I'll tell, well most of my talk is going to be just telling that story and some of my reflections and perspective on it. So I'd, I'd just recovered from, uh, well, what best described as something of a breakdown, and I was sort of making my way back into life and back into re-involving myself with Tree Ratna. 
and I just arranged to go to Cambridge to help out with the Christmas rush and help out in the, wa the, in the warehouse, partly with a view that I might move there and uh, plug myself into the, the Cambridge Sanger. <coughs> and I thought before I do that, I'll go away on solitary. So I went to Guialoka on solitary and I, I spent a week with the community initially. And it was during that first week I noticed there was a lump on my neck. And I first of all, that's a bit odd. Maybe I've been bitten by a mosquito and, you know, something's inflamed. And uh, I didn't know what it was. I thought, you know, it might be this or it might be that, but I didn't know what it was. And I went into the solitary very much aware that there was this lump. And I suppose, you know, initial reaction, I just wanted it to go away. Uh, I didn't want to have a sort of worry about a lump. Because like most people, I'm aware that lumps, you know, need to be taken seriously. And if we have a lump up here, well, we need to act on it. Anyway, I still managed to have a very good solitary and I engaged with the solitary. And in some ways, part of me just wanted to ignore this lump. But I remember I went to the dentist and I noticed the dentist was, just for a checkup, was feeling around my soft tissue. And I said, oh, are you looking for lumps? And uh, she said, yes, you know, it's part of the checkup. And I said, well, I've got a lump on my neck, actually, which has just appeared. So she sort of encouraged me, well, you need to check that out. So it was with some reluctance I went along to one of these walk-in um, NHS centres. And I think I was sort of expected to be told, oh, just go away, don't worry about it, you know, it's nothing. But um, the doctor who saw me reacted quite strongly. He said, you've got to go immediately to your GP, get an emergency appointment, and this needs to be looked at. So I went along to my GP, and they said, oh, we don't do emergency appointments, you've got to wait until the end of surgery. So one of the worst bits of this is sort of not knowing. You know, you start worrying and all this, what's the technical term? Papancha, you know, likely stories of what might, what might be going on. And then you think, oh, I'm just making a fuss about nothing. But anyway, I eventually saw the doctor and he said, well, it could be one of a hundred things, you know, which sort of calmed me down a bit. And uh, he said, well, I'll, I'll refer you to the consultant. So two weeks later, I, I go and see a consultant and um, yeah she takes it quite seriously she sticks a needle in my in my lump and you know, takes a needle biopsy as it's called and then I was sent on for further scans so there's quite a period where you're sort of waiting not knowing and of course my move to Cambridge was uh, stalled you know I didn't know what my my future was going to be anyway eventually you know I'm pleased they did take it very seriously and although it was quite worrying, eventually I, I was given a diagnosis after a, a tonsillectomy that there was a, a cancer in my right tonsil. Uh, for those, I know there's a few medical people here, but was it a squamous cell carcinoma? And I had secondaries in the lymph nodes in my neck. And then... I was referred from the ENT, ear, nose and throat consultant, on to see an oncologist. And that's quite, that's quite difficult because the way they seem to do it these days is they sort of lay out possible courses of treatment you can have. And they sort of say, well, what do you want to do? And yeah, well, I don't know. You know, I haven't, I haven't been here before. I haven't got the experience. But, you know, a friend of mine said, well, ask the consultant. Well, I said, well, what would you do in my position? But one of the options he did give me which I talked to a friend about, 
um, was I, I could take part in a trial. I could take part in uh, helping to test a new way of treating this type of cancer. And I talked to a, a friend who had HIV and he'd done something similar. And one sort of carroty dangle was, he said, well, I seem to get looked after very well because I'm in this trial. But one thing that did appeal to me was, you know, in terms of making this choice, well, there is an altruistic dimension to taking part in a trial. So I chose to do the trial. But there was a bit of self-interest. I thought, well, they'll look after me better because I'm in this trial. So the oncologist made it very clear I was in for a very tough time. You know, the, the type of cancer treatment I had to go through was going to be tough. And he you know, made it quite clear at the beginning. I mean, at the end, he said, well, that is, you know, for lumps, that is probably the toughest cancer treatment you can go through. I think there's other forms of cancer where you can have an even tougher time. But for lumps, it was, you know, very tough. Particularly having radiotherapy on your mouth and throat, it just turns, you know, turns your whole mouth and throat into one big ulcer, basically. So speaking, breathing, swallowing, eating it all becomes very, very painful. But I, sort of, I thought I sort of let myself in gently. So I, the way I did it was I went for the chemotherapy first rather than go for the radiotherapy first. And that meant having um, yeah, three months of chemotherapy, one week in hospital as an inpatient, then two weeks out to recover. And I was sort of, I was sort of told that you either find the chemotherapy really bad or you find the radiotherapy really bad. So I was sort of hoping that I may not be in for that hard a time. I don't know. Anyway, it was horrible. You know. um, I hate needles. I mean, even going to the dentist, uh, you know, I have to get my mantra going and <laughs> the state of panic. But those you know, intravenous chemotherapies when they put a cannula in your arm and you know, you're hooked up to it for... Well, four days in a row, you know, day and night, having this poison pumped into your system. But one thing I wasn't expecting was on arrival in hospital, they tend to combine chemotherapy with steroids. They give you quite a strong steroid to sort of boost your system. And I think they used to give the steroids a few days before so that you were ready to go, but they hadn't done that in my case. So I was given a triple dose of steroids on arrival in the hospital, and this was late afternoon. And steroids really wire you, you know, you're, it's like, you know, having a sort of speed. So I didn't sleep at all that night. Uh, I was having poison pumped into my system and just really wired on a triple dose of steroids. So the whole thing was really unpleasant, you know, right from the beginning. And I thought, well, this is just the beginning. And so uh, I wasn't looking forward to the rest of it. But one thing that, that really helped was... Um, well, the support I got from the Sangha, you know, right from early on, um, a friend of mine, you know, put it out on the order information service. Karen Avadra has been diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. He's got to go through all these various treatments. And then, you know, quite immediately, all these cards started arriving. And I was knocked out of it. People I hardly knew, you know, were sending me cards. And some of them seemed particularly pertinent. I remember, I, you know, because I'd been to Cambridge a bit, um, I got a card from the Cambridge warehouse team and uh, Artipria, who's here, I mean, I didn't know he was going to be here, but I was, he, he put this little 
quote, he said, at times like this, you realise what is most precious in life. And I read that and it just went boom, you know. And I thought, well, I'm a Buddhist, you know, what is most precious? So I, di- I did my best to turn uh, to my Buddhist practice, you know, to get through it. But the support of the Sangha was overwhelming. Um, really lovely. And, uh, you know, I put all these cars up around my room, you know, hundreds of them. And you really get the sense of you're not alone. You know, this, this bigger force, if you like, outside of you, you know, coming in and helping you, helping me. Um, another thing that really helped was, you know, actually having the chemotherapy as an inpatient and being on a ward with other cancer patients. Because part of the way, you know, I reacted, you know, along with this great aversion was, why me? You know, why is this happening to me? Okay, I, you know, I smoked a drink and, you know, in my student years I took lots of drugs, but I've been practicing for 20 plus years. You know, I've been a vegetarian, eating well. I'd done lots of yoga. I wasn't even 50. You know, why is this happening to me? You know, you tend to take it quite personally, thinking, you know, that somehow, you know, the plan's gone wrong somehow. Maybe I am really bad, you know. These, these sort of voices going on. But one thing, being on a cancer ward with other cancer patients, was you realise, well, it's not just about you. It's what happens to other people. And one thing that seems particularly to help is seeing that there's people who've got it worse than you, which sort of engenders a certain empathy. And the chap in the bed next to me, he was in his 30s, and he'd ha- he had bone cancer in his foot. And he'd just been told, and he was just coming to terms with the fact that he, he was going to have his lower leg amputated. And I thought, that struck me. And he was reading this book, which I'd read myself, Jupiter's Travels, which was the story of a, a chap riding around the world on a Triumph Bonneville motorbike. So, and he was a farmer, you know, f- physical work. And he was going to have his leg amputated. So I thought, well, he's not going to ride a motorbike again. You know, I love riding motorbikes. I, I was given a you know, 75 to 80% chance of getting through it. So I had the sense of, you know, my life, I can return to a sort of almost normal life. Which, you know, luckily I have. Apart from having a bit of a dry mouth, I, I, you know, I live a fairly normal life now. So it wasn't just about me. It wasn't personal, you know. Maybe the Buddha was right, you know. Old age, sickness and death happen. You know, happen to us all. Maybe old age if we're lucky. You know, we may not even be lucky enough to get to old age, but sickness and loss and so on, well, it happens to us all. It wasn't personal. And, of course, the, the staff, I mean, some nurses are just so good. You know, I remember the, the sister who initiated me into the cannula. She was apparently one of the best at you know, using the needles because my veins were a bit deep. They weren't easy to find. But the other nurses said, oh, you're in good hands there. Sister Sandra, you know, she's the best with the needles. So that took some of my fear of needles away, even though she needed three attempts to find me vain. But she was so human as well, and she was sharing a bit about her life. She was a single mum, and she was struggling with work and you know, bringing up a family. Just very human, and, that, and I remember that really helped, because I was, you know, I was not looking forward to all that. Um, another thing I did which really helped was I asked to see Banty. I mean, one of the good things, well, it used to be the case, living in Birmingham, Banty was around. 
So I thought, well, ban I remember Banty was really important to me when I went through another period of illness. I used to listen to him a lot on the tapes. And once I got through the tape lectures a couple of times, I started on the seminars on tape. I used to listen to him, you know, almost 24-7. It really was quite a refuge to me. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll, you know, he's here, I'll go and see Banty. And I went to see him just before I started the second cycle of chemotherapy. Uh, at that time, I, remember I had been given the steroids to take, so I, I went to see him wired on steroids. <laughs> and uh, it was a bit intense. But, but, but one thing I remember was he told me about, you know, he was very supportive and em empathetic. Is that the right word? Anyway. Um, but he told me, well, one thing you have got control of through all this, I mean, he says, you may not know what the outcome is, but you have got some control over your own mind. So he really pointed me to, you know, watch my own mind and do what I could to, well, like stop the papancha and just, you know, work as best I could about not reacting and, uh, you know, keeping my mantra going. I mean, another bonkers view I had about um, going through this sort of thing that, well, I thought I may die, you know. I sort of had this view that because I'm a Buddhist, that I'm going to approach my death in the same way that the Buddha approached his death, you know, being mindful and uh, reposed and approaching death with great dignity. And it was quite, quite a shock to realise, well, I couldn't meditate. You know, initially, I remember sitting up in my hospital bed trying to meditate. I had all of Bantis' lectures on my iPod. And that, you know, I was just so wiped with the chemotherapy drugs and so addled in my brain that the best I could do was listen to, um, you know, keep my mantra going a bit. That was my only sort of practice. Um, so that was quite sobering as well. I sort of thought that, you know, because I'm a Buddhist, that I'll be able to approach death mindfully. Um, I, don't know where, I don't know where I picked up this view, but I think I was very moved and inspired by the Parinibbana Sutta. And I thought it was good. somehow I thought it was going to be the same for me, but it's cuckoo land. Anyway, I went to see Banty, and you know, was pointed, you know, try and engage with your mind as best you can. And I also had a sense of, you know, there's all these people wishing me well and supporting me. I've really got to do what I can to sort of do my part of it. So there was a sort of determination. This is going to be tough, but I'm going to get through it. I'm really going to draw on all my resources. I thought, I've been through quite a few difficulties. You know, this is just another one. I can get through this. But then come the radiotherapy. I had a month of radiotherapy where you have it Monday to Friday um, for, for four weeks. And then once a week you get another dose of chemotherapy. Halfway through the radiotherapy treatment, um, yeah, I had a night where I was just throwing up all the time. And by this point, my throat and mouth were just one big blister. So it's almost, it seemed every hour I'd just be sick. But I had nothing to be sick, so I was just retching through this throat, which you know, was really painful. And I turned up the next day for the, the next treatment, and I had to say, look, I can't take any more. Now, it felt like a certain admission of failure in some ways. I was determined that I was going to get through it, and I reached the point where I thought, well, I can't carry on. Um, but the, you know, the medical team said, well, the treatment works by 
You know, you've got to keep going through it. If you have a break, I wanted to take a break. If you have a break, it's going to diminish the effects of the treatment and, you know, you may be risking uh, your life even. But what they did offer me, he says, well, we can bring you into hospital uh, and we can, we can give you stronger painkillers. And, uh, you know, they gave me a load of morphine. And if it wasn't for that, you know, particularly the morphine, I wouldn't have carried on, you know. But, the, you know, I, maybe it's particular disposition, but morphine, great, you know. <laughs> so definitely my drug of choice, you know. It, it, it was a bit, okay, let's carry on, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I was nicely bombed out. But luckily in Birmingham, they had that facility where they could take you into hospital and support you through it. And I remember saying to one of the junior doctors, you know, I'm really grateful that I've got this support from you. I, you know, I wouldn't have been able to carry on without you. And she responded very well. She said, well, that's what we're here for. Uh, you know, very heartfelt. She obviously, you know, she was a, a doctor because it was a vocation for her. She wanted to help people's uh, suffering. So, yeah, I got through the the radiotherapy. Another thing I want to sort of mention, a big thanks to my mother as well. I mean, um, you know, I was taken back into hospital and when I came out, there was this lovely sense that I went back to a, a freshly made bed with a hot water bottle in it and I didn't have to do anything. And you now my mother was sort of there also looking after me. I'm very grateful for that. So I had the Sangha, I had the hospital supporting me, you know, the doctors and nurses, and I had, you know, my family, my mother in particular. <coughs> and then, yeah, I finished the radiotherapy, and at the end of it, I thought, oh God, thank God that's over. You know, I'm through the worst of it. But because of the, the particular part of the trial I was in, I was due to have a second operation. I was due to have an operation to remove the lymph nodes from my neck. But even then, more aversion. I just didn't want any more treatment. And uh, I was put again in a difficult position. The oncologists were saying, well, maybe the second operation isn't necessary. You know, the tumours have shrunk. Um, they may, you know, there may be no more cancer. But the surgeon, I, I was a bit suspicious. The surgeon seemed very keen to go ahead and do the operation. I thought, well, is, is there any self-interest there? You know, does he like <laughs> practising his skill, so to speak? But... I remember another thing that really helped was speaking to my Kalyana Mitra, Padma Vajra, on the phone. He was my preceptor as well. And, he, and again, he said something which sort of cut through a lot of my confusion and, and aversion. He said, you've got to remember, Karana Vajra, you're trying to give yourself the best opportunity of getting through this. And then it's aimed clear, you know, have the operation. You know, it may mean going back into hospital. and It was a major operation, one thing I was a bit worried about is they said I may lose the use of my right arm, you know, because they cut so many nerves. Well, I thought my right arm's with throttle, you know. I, you know, I can't ride a motorbike without a right arm. So I was quite worried. And also it gets very close to your main artery here and you, know, you can lose a lot of blood, even life-threatening. Anyway, it seemed to be that's the best opportunity to sort of being clear of cancer. So I went for it. I had the operation, the lumps were taken out and as it turned out, you know, the cells, the cancer cells in the lumps, they were dead. You know, it was inert. But at least it gave me the peace of mind that, you know, I didn't have a little lump still in my neck which I thought, well, is it going to be cancer? Is it growing again? So, you know, they were taken out and 
No, I, I came through it. How are we doing? I've got, I've got another 20 minutes. Oh, right, okay. All right. Oh, good. Okay, good. I may get to the teddy bears then. Um, well, well, one thing I wanted to talk a bit more about was, um, well, what's the effect of that? You know, what's the effect of going through all that, you know, as a Buddhist? As I say, in some ways, I was quite lucky. You know, I had, especially seven weeks on a cancer ward, you know, you see quite a few things which, you know, can't help but impact upon you. You know, you see people very close to death. You see the reaction of relatives. Uh, you see their concern and their love, but you also see their worry. I remember that's a, ban- a point Banty made to me, that, you know, I was finding it a bit difficult dealing with my parents through all this, because I, I was back living with them. And he said, well, one thing about family is, you know, they, they care and they're concerned, but they worry. And one thing I noticed, the difference between, you know, Sangha friends visiting me and family visiting me was, my Sangha friends didn't seem to be so worried. Uh, they were more able just to support me. And in some ways, you know, that, that made a big difference. I remember, if my parents visited, I found it quite an ordeal. Because you could see worry just written all over their faces. Not very relaxing. But, now, people often have cancer, they thought, well, if I do survive, what do I want to do with my life? Uh, That's quite a theme on cancer wards, you know. If you do survive, you come up with a bit of a bucket list. (laughs) And, well, well, the main thing that I came up with was something, you know, it's just a reminder that I've been given this precious opportunity. You know, I've found the Dharma in this life. Why don't I try and practice it more wholeheartedly? You know, that was the main lesson. I mean, there were other things as well. I, I wanted to go to Venice, and I wanted to do mo- more motorcycle touring around Europe. I've done neither of those things, actually. But I think I have made, you know, tried, tried to practice more wholeheartedly. You know. And, I mean, that's how I ended up meeting Arthur Vardin, that my de- decision to go and live at Guialoka for a while was, you know, to put myself in really good conditions. Because I know from my experience that conditions are so important. I mean, I'm sure you've heard it elsewhere, but the better conditions we can get ourselves in, or the more regularly we can put ourselves in good conditions, the better. So I had a big yes to go and live at Guriyaloka. And, and well, it's right, you know, that I, my ability to practice wholeheartedly certainly rose there. I gave myself a much better chance of engaging more and more of me with the spiritual life. And I'm, I'm very grateful for the period I had there. So that, that was one of the the main um, things that came out of it, a desire to you know, take advantage of this precious opportunity to try and practice more wholeheartedly and to put myself in as best conditions as I could. And luckily I was able to you know, live that out. So that was the main thing. I, w- I will finish I mean, I was just with the story about the teddy bears because this was sort of peak experience in the other way. <laughs> And uh, no, I, I did experience spiritual death, to some, which I did try and embrace. But luckily, I did have an experience of the, you know, the, the other side of the coin, as it were. You know, a, a really blissful, meaningful, satisfying experience. And it came, um, came about last summer. I mean, the, the north of England had a great cultural coup, which some of you may not be aware of. But the, there was a Jackson Pollock exhibition in Liverpool, and they had 50 of his works together in one place, and it was in the north of England. 
I don't know if anybody knew about it, but I went there. I didn't know much about Jackson Pollock, but I thought, well, he's supposed to be famous, isn't he? And I was beginning to like modern abstract art, so I went up to this exhibition. And Jackson Pollock is one of these artists who tends to paint on quite big canvases, and you really have to see them and be with them. And being in a you know an exhibition where there were fifty of his works was quite something. And it it was the exhibition which sort of blew me away the most. And one thing I found was looking at these pictures was my heart just opened, but not sort of op only open, but there was a sense of just being full of love, being filled with love. And you have this mystery that you're looking at something quite abstract. I mean, some people just see it as, you know, well, my five-year-old could do that. But it seemed to be so full of life. And all these forms seem to come and go out of the picture. You see forms you recognise. Oh, is that a squirrel jumping between branches? Is that a cow looking between its legs? You see all these sort of forms which you recognise as life, and they sort of come and go and change. And so there's this sense, well, that's the way I explain it, of feeling very connected with life. And you now that's a very hard thing. And it was a beautiful day in Liverpool. You know, the sun was shining. There were lots of people on holiday. It was in August. And I left the art gallery just feeling so connected with life. Uh, and the sort of the external conditions seemed to reflect that. The sun was shining, the sky was blue. People had, you know, smiles on their faces. And then I went down into the underground, in some ways a bit of a different environment. But as I was going down into the underground and walking through the passageways, I glimpsed this teddy bear which was attached to somebody's shoulder bag. And he kept sort of disappearing, a bit like you know, a Pollock Pay, disappearing as he hid behind somebody else's body, and then he reappeared. And I think because I've been looking at the art, you know, this teddy bear seems so alive. <laughs> you know, it didn't seem like a, you know, a stuffed, cuddly toy. It was you know, a living being. And uh, yeah, I kept getting glimpses of him, and then I found myself walking down the platform, and there he was again on the, this woman's shoulder. And as I passed her, I said, that's a lovely teddy bear. And she really engaged with me. And she said, oh, do you like him? And I said, yeah, he's, I think he's lovely. I've, I've been watching him as I've been. As, as he had a good day in Liverpool, she said, oh, he's had a fantastic day. <laughs> we've, we've been to the Beatles Museum. You know, we've been you know, walking on the quay. And I said, did you go to the Tate Gallery? Said, oh, no, we didn't make it there. We were hoping to go there. Anyway, I said, oh, we must go. It's brilliant. So I found myself getting into this really intense, lovely conversation with this woman who owned this teddy bear. And she was part of a, a sort of an extended family group, like her mother was there and her children. And they were all just so friendly. It's like they're, you know, it's one of these weird glimpses you can get sometimes, like, like after a really good metabahavna. You go out and you just meet people and have these loving... Anyway, so I said, now, has this teddy bear got a name? And she said, no, actually, I only got him this morning. And she said to me, what's your name? And I thought, well, should I have a Buddhist name or old name? Anyway, I gave my old name, Martin. I said, my name's Martin. She said, well, I'll call him Martin. <laughs> and I, I was so touched. <laughs> I, I, th I thought that's one of the nicest things <laughs> that everybody, you know, anybody's ever said to me. Now, I'm going to call my teddy bear Martin. And the you know, her mother, you know, the grandmother sort of thing, said, well, we've got another teddy bear in this bag. We haven't brought him out yet. What's your middle name? <laughs> so, 
So I said, well, my middle name was Ross. She said, well, we'll call him Ross. <laughs> so, so it doubled. <laughs> I now had two teddy bears named after me by these almost complete strangers. And they were Glaswegians on holiday in Liverpool. And I was so touched. Anyway, I got my smartphone out and got a picture of taking me, <laughs> me and this teddy bear. But I was almost speechless because I was so touched. And, and my heart, you know, having a, a, this lovely full open heart, you know, something sort of really pierced me. I was really struck how, you know, what a lovely experience that was. What an intimate thing to do to a complete stranger. And I, I wish, you know, Martin the teddy bear goodbye. I said, I hope you have a lovely life. I hope you get loads of affection. Because that's what teddy bears want, is it? Loads of affection. And I said goodbye. And I thought, well, I'm never going to see them again. But I wanted to honour that meeting somehow. So the, ne- the next day when I was back in Birmingham, I went round the charity shops and I bought myself a teddy bear. And he's a teddy bear with a lovely big red heart. And he's also got red hearts on his feet. Sorry, not his hands. He's got red hearts on his feet. And I've called him Glasgow. Because that, that's all I know about them. And I think if I had to go through this cancer thing again, I used to take my picture of Tara, which I, I thought was a bit mixed because it, 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 I don't know, it separated me a bit. Some people thought I was a bit odd. But I thought if I have to go through that again, I'm going to take my teddy bear. I'm going to take Glasgow with me. And in some ways that connects me with something, in some ways, equally positive. So that's, yeah, that was a really lovely sort of peak experience. You know, I was saying to Arthur Vardy, I think my life may have peaked. I'm not sure if it gets any better than that. Because it, it, was, it was a really touching, moving experience uh, of having two teddy bears named after me. So, thank you for listening. Um, that's all I've got to say. Yes, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth. More on spiritual rebirth tomorrow. <laughs>